This podcast is supported by the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, one of America's leading medical research schools. How will advances in artificial intelligence transform medical research and medical care? To find out, we invite you to read a special supplement to Science Magazine prepared by Icon Mount Sinai in partnership with Science. Just visit our website at science.org and search for Frontiers of Medical Research Artificial Intelligence. On May 1st and May 2nd, ICON, Mount Sinai, and the New York Academy of Sciences will be convening a major symposium in New York City on the new wave of AI in healthcare. For more information and to register, please visit events.nyas.org slash AI health. That's events.nyas.org slash AI health. The ICON School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. We find a way. This week's episode is brought to you in part by Science Careers. Looking for some career advice? Wondering how to get ahead or how to strike a better work-life balance? Visit our site to read how others are doing it. Use our individual development plan tool, access topic-specific article collections, or search for an exciting new job. Science Careers, produced by Science and AAAS, is a free website full of resources to help get the most out of your career. Visit sciencecareers.org today to get started. This is the Science Podcast for February 3rd, 2023. I'm Sarah Crespi. First up this week, what can we learn from a mummy factory? Contributing correspondent Andrew Curry is here to talk the chemistry of mummification, and why we don't know everything about the preservation methods used all those years ago. Next up, how having a smart toilet can contribute to your health. Sungmin Park and colleagues wrote this week in Science Translational Medicine about the powers of super toilets to improve health and the psychological and ethical barriers to adopting a smart toilet of your very own. Are you a mummy guy? You know, not really. <laughs> like, I'm also not a mummy person. Yeah, I grew up in uh, San Jose, California. And at some point, the Rosicrucian Society, which was like a weird mid-late 1800s cult, had their headquarters there. And they had this whole Egyptian museum. And there was a real mummy. And we all went to see it in sixth grade. It was like the sixth grade thing. And it was so creepy and gross because it was unwrapped. Ooh, in elementary school, we actually... I remember learning the steps. Oh, this is the jar for organs. And this is how you get the brain out. And I'm just like, now looking back, why? Why do we learn this? But yeah, when I went to the British Museum in London, and I'm just in a room full of corpses, I didn't like it. So I'm going to stop here for just one second. That was me and contributing correspondent Andrew Curry. We're talking about mummies. He wrote a story this week. It's about a mummy factory, mummy chemistry. But I felt like we were kind of starting out as mummy downers. So I had to go get someone to kind of be a mummy supporter. Mike Price is a, one of our online news editors, and he writes a lot of archaeology stories and edits a lot of archaeology stories as well. So he's here to take the mummies part. Just come in here and, and tell me all about, okay. Here's what I think about mummies. I think that mummies reflect pretty much the best of humanity because what they mean is that someone cared enough that they wanted to preserve someone's memory in the most physical, meaningful, tangible way possible. That thousands of years in the future, we can still touch and see and be squicked out by these loved ones 
and respected ones and revered ones, that that's amazing. I feel like that says something really, really amazing about humanity, that we can take the time to preserve the things we cherish most. Uh, yeah, sure, they're a little gross, but, uh, you know, we're gross and disgusting and, and gelatinous when we're alive, too. So I don't <laughs> so we are kind of always leaking fluids. Exactly. We, you know, we just, we hide it a little bit better than, than the mummies do, but we have that's tissues. That is great. Do you want to know what I think is one of the more, like, gruesome, but also kind of fascinating oh, no. things that I know about mummies? Okay. So during Victorian times in England, they used to have mummy unwrapping parties anatomists would invite people to their anatomy theater and host these grand banquets where the final reveal the the upshot of the party would be that you'd have the physicist unwrap a mummy in front of people which is you know from from a from a human perspective um is really gross and um yeah invasive yeah uh, Kind of makes you want to take back all that nice stuff you said about humanity before. Well, yeah, yeah, exactly. That, you know, I think maybe the things the things that we that we do with mummies sometimes don't reflect the best of us. The, the making of the mummies is is um, where humanity shines. Thank you, Mike, for standing up for mummies and and humanity in general. Now we're going to get back to Andrew Curry and his story on the recent discovery of a mummy factory. In 2016, some Egyptologists went looking for evidence of of how the ancient Egyptians mummified bodies. And they lucked out at a burial complex just south of Cairo and found it was like a three-level, as you said, mummy factory, where at the top they had pits to dry out the bodies using a special kind of salt. And then there was a vertical shaft that went down, and underground they had a whole sort of corpse dissection room to prepare the mummies. And what was really lucky is that through some ritual process, and the, the archaeologist who excavated it thinks that all the vessels and tools used to prepare a mummy couldn't be used again for a, a different person. So they had to be disposed of. After 50 or 60 years, they filled in the shaft, they sealed it up, and they used all the sort of used vessels as filler. But when they excavated it, that meant that they had these labeled jars and bowls and all the things that they used wow. that were intact. And the most important thing was it was written right on the jar what was inside it. <laughs> Archaeologists love a trash pile. Yeah, exactly. That's amazing. So that's something that hasn't been seen before. This like a jar that says in here is preservation tar or whatever. Exactly. People have looked at mummies and seen some of the chemicals, and they've looked at texts and seen some of the words, but there had never been anything that had both the words and the chemicals in one place. And this is the first time they found that. And it's the first actual mummy workshop they've excavated. Were mummy workshops not common then, or are they hidden, or were they destroyed? Do we know anything about how likely it was to run into one of these? I think they weren't hugely common. This was still kind of an elite practice, but the main reason is people just hadn't looked for these things before. People were looking for the mummies themselves or inscriptions, but hadn't paid that much attention. And there's not much there. I mean, a lot of times they were above ground things that might have been temporary structures. And it's easy to overlook unless you, you go in looking for it specifically. Yeah. Well, let's go to the jars. Let's talk about the label and the contents. There's chemicals in these jars, residues. Do they match what's on mummies, you know, that people have looked at in the past? They do. There's there's a limited amount of 
mean, people have analyzed the mummies, but the resolution wasn't great. They could sort of tell it's some sort of pine-related thing or petroleum-based tar, and they got better data out of the ceramic vessels themselves and found sort of juniper, pistachio. But the really mind-blowing thing for me was that they found resin from trees that only grow in tropical rainforests in India or beyond. Wow. Called dammer and elamiers, the, the two trees, and super rare and don't grow anywhere near Egypt. So not only are these chemical residues showing how they made the mummies, but they're also showing that this was a global process where they had to import this stuff from thousands of kilometers away. Do we know how old this particular site is when these jars were filled with stuff? This particular site is fairly young in the Egyptian context. I think it's from about 600 BC and comes from a time when mummification was slowly getting more accessible. So it was still a wealthy thing, but it wasn't just the pharaoh and his relatives. If you were kind of a, a rich priest or something like that, you could pay to have yourself mummified. And that's why we need a factory. Exactly. So more and more people are having this done. And I told you earlier about the shaft where they went down 12 meters to the embalming chamber. And then they went down another 12 meters and started building burial chambers. So it was like you started at the top of the shaft, you had to stop to take out your organs in the middle, and then they just buried you in sarcophagi at the bottom. So it was a staging ground, a processing area, and then a burial area all in one kind of facility. Yeah. Any other surprises when the labels and the contents of the jars were compared? I feel like that's really, you know, for people who study language or writing from ancient Egypt, this has got to be pretty exciting. They have to reevaluate things now, maybe. There are a couple words that appear thousands of times in ancient Egyptian texts that people had always translated as myrrh, like the incense from the Bible. But when they tested that, it isn't. It's cedar. And it's possible that the meaning of the word changed. People had been mummifying for thousands of years, or that it was a more general, you know, rather than a specific thing, it just meant ointment. And then the compound changed over time. Yeah. But people who work with texts are now going to have to go back and say, myrrh was always associated with a specific geographical spot and a certain kind of trade. And they're going to have to completely reevaluate that. But as you say, things change over these like incredibly long timescales. When we talk about ancient Egypt, we're talking about thousands of years. We're talking about, you know, this mummy factory. It's, again, thousands of years old. These chemicals that were examined, these mass spec, are they holding up over that time? Are we really able to ID something that has been sitting around for so long? That is a question that one of the folks I talked to raised was there's no good way to do a controlled experiment of how resins decay over 3,000 years. And so just because it looks like cedar today, there's a chance it could be something else. And I think, you know, it comes down to that classic, we need more data. But hopefully now that there's sort of this baseline with the words, they can do more informed studies of mummies in museums or the pottery that is in museum collections. And archaeologists will know what they're looking for when they go to look at other sites in Egypt. Really interesting. Sounds like there's a lot more to learn from this site and from elsewhere about this process, which is kind of surprising. 
because we've known about mummification for so long, but we still don't know kind of the basics, the basics of the chemicals. Has anybody tried to mummify a person in modern times using these techniques? Yes. One of the authors on this study, actually, somebody donated their body to science and he mummified them. Why did he do that, Andrew? What was he trying to figure out? I mean, he was trying to figure out if you could actually rely on the textual information and the descriptions. And he had been studying mummies and thought he had an idea of of what was involved. But did it actually work? Also, things like they think maybe some of these chemicals, you would put it on the skin to prevent the skin from discoloring, which would happen really quickly in the desert heat. And so sort of to test how effective these different compounds were at different stages. Now, was this done before the findings we're talking about today or? It was. Yeah, this is an older older study. Okay. So maybe he'll try again. (laughs) Thank you so much, Andrew. Thank you. Andrew Curry is a contributing correspondent for science based in Berlin. You can find a link to the paper we discussed at science.org slash podcast. Stay tuned for my interview with Sungmin Park. He's an instructor in the Department of Urology at Stanford University School of Medicine. We're going to talk about super smart toilets that can collect health information. This week's episode is brought to you in part by Science Careers. Change your job and you might just change the world. For anyone who's looking to get ahead in or just plain get into science, there's no better, more trusted resource than Science Careers. And it's free. On our site, you can search career opportunities across all disciplines and levels, research potential employers, sign up to get job alerts via email, upload your resume or CV to the searchable database, or read career advice articles. There's no shortage of global problems today that science can't solve. Be part of the solution. Visit sciencecareers.org today. During the coronavirus pandemic, cities and even college campuses have been monitoring wastewater for virus, looking for new variants and outbreaks. And maybe you have had to supply a urine or stool sample to your own doctor for testing, not for coronavirus, but for other things. Now, imagine if these functions could be combined, collection, monitoring, and testing into a super smart toilet. This week in Science Translational Medicine, Sung Min Park and colleagues write about the possible capabilities of smart toilets and the ethical and privacy issues that come along with it. Hi, Sung Ming. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you. Okay, I want to start with this. I want to get this out of the way right at the beginning. Do you have a smart toilet that you use? Yes, it is installed in my house. We have uh, some like prototype to look at all my excretory habit over 87 days. We collected all those data. (laughs) Interestingly, I can tell you 87 days, I have 800 excretory events. Oh my gosh. Yes, 600 urination, 200 defecation. That has been never being collected at all in the scientific history at all. So now I have an eight-year-old. So we use so-called potty words kind of daily around here. But this is not something a lot of people are comfortable discussing, particularly with other adults, even their doctors sometimes. Does that make it difficult to study toileting, smart toilets, like how they could improve our lives? That's really true. We think that there's a psychological barrier 
that's one of the most impeding factors for smart toilet developments. People just think that it's too dirty or it's unpleasant. Even scientists, they believe that it's not a worthy of subject to investigate. That's the reason why I started this project at the School of Medicine, because they're always dealing with a human substance, such as blood, such as urine, stool, every day. They're more open-minded for dealing with a human excreta. There are definitely some advantages, as I outlined at the beginning, to having a smarter toilet. Like not having to collect your own stool would be really nice. How easy would something like that be to build into a toilet? There is an engineering challenge for effective health monitoring. These include the cross-contamination between users. So that's going to be an, one issue. The other issue is how to collect the sample efficiently, because we may need a robotic arms. We may need a, some kind of computer vision to look at the human excreta. Then we can scoop it just a little bit. But we kind of need a, some kind of effective robotic tools that's efficiently collected. What could you detect in the moment? Like, is there anything that you could read off of a person who is on a smart toilet? So we're just using the very first sensor that is called optical scanner. Optical scanner doesn't need any kind of reagent. Only thing it needs is electricity, right? We are scanning the human excreta every time people's defecated or urinated. Then we just collect some information from uh, imagery data out of it. Like what? Like how much? Yeah, how much you defecate or urinated or the color or the morphology or speed or like duration. That's all really important information for a physician, actually. I talked to various gastrointestinal doctors, urology doctors. They are really eager to know those kind of parameters because it was not possible before these kind of things happen in the field. Right, because collection, nobody likes doing that. Self-reporting, not super great. Not super great. What about taking it a step further beyond the optical scan here? Like what future, I guess in the future, like what could be done at the toilet level? Last year, we published an article about implementing small toilet system as a healthcare sentinel for COVID-19 containments. So what we're trying to do is trying to employ those robotic arms to intercept the defecation so that we have a little bit of sample of a human stool. Then we're trying to implement the rapid PCR to see whether the stool contains SARS-CoV-2 or not. That was published in last year, and it actually draws some attention, and we have some criticism too. We thought that it was a great deal because it would be less invasive than the nasopharyngeal swab because you don't need to do a thing, but more personalized than a wastewater study because wastewater study is just a collective, the lump sum of everyone's poop, right? Yeah. I think if we have a large network of these smart toilet systems, it will be very, very much useful resources for public health because we know that where the outbreak started from and that we can effectively contain that. You also talk about some like further types of testing that could be done, for example, capturing the urine stream so that you can test it for all those different test strips they have in the doctor's office for pregnancy, for infections. You know, you can test whether or not someone has a bladder infection, I think, using these test strips. Yes, UTI, urinary tract infection, kidney stones, all those like a urinary tract infection, we can actually detect it with our uh, system. Longitudinally, what we're trying to expand is to include the microbiome analysis of stool for looking at the immune system reactivity. There's tons of application I can think of, 
but one of our most challenging thing is engineering challenge because for microbiome analysis, you have to have like a benchtop sequencers. That's a super expensive. I don't think it's... And you're going to put it in a toilet. Yeah, right. Yeah. Or a mass spec, right? You're going to put a mass spectrometer in a toilet. Those two applications were attempted by one of a professor at UCSD. His name was Jack Gilbert. Jack Gilbert is having a company that's putting the sequencer right next to the toilet. The other professor, Joshua Kuhn from University of Wisconsin Medicine, he's actually putting all his urine sample to the mass spectrometer to look at the 600 metabolites activity level. It's a treasure trove of biomarkers. Yeah, we don't have that baseline data at this point. Not yet. We're talking a lot about the possibilities here, what technologies could be implemented if we had maybe more money or people were more able to loosen up a little bit and give this data. But what about the need? Do we know that ongoing monitoring of the contents of stool or urine would actually be beneficial to human health. They don't catch things early, lead to better outcomes, because this isn't always the case with health screenings, right? That's not always more is better. So I need to explain the concept of precision health. Precision health is more proactive version of precision medicine. While precision medicine is kind of reactive to the disease manifestation, precision health is poised to be more proactive and personalized healthcare, which means we want to make people healthy when they are healthy. One of the main core of this precision health is the continuous monitoring of human health. We want to know any subtle change to a body and we want to detect it as early as possible. But thing is, you can use wearable devices, we can use a smart home, but I think the most important thing is a passive monitoring of human body. That was the reason why we are looking at the smart toilet because nobody can avoid it, first of all. Second, it has a urine and stool that's a human-derived sample that we can do almost everything. (laughs) So we don't need to worry about the needle. We don't need to worry about sampling issues. One thing is that if we have an established smart toilet, we can do everything automatically and passively. This is kind of personalized and also opt in. So you don't need to test everybody all the time for everything. It's more like, what are we looking for in this particular person? That's true. I'm not talking specifically about maybe where you've deployed these things, but like thinking further down the line, if you put them in hospitals, that could be beneficial for patients, but it could also cross the line for staff or for a visitor to use a toilet like that. That's very important for us that we need to identify who's using the toilet. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We have a biometric identification method, actually. We have a very unique one. Uh, we installed the fingerprint scanner on the flush lever. And second one was like a little bit shocking. It was about the human anus. So we actually use uh, wrinkles or creases of the human anus as a, one of a biometric identification method. One of the best applications for that is we can diagnose any kind of anus-related disease by using that technology. So we are uh, working with uh, colorectal surgeons, mostly dealing with uh, anal disease. They're mentioning that most of anus-related disease was diagnosed with visual assessment. So that means we can utilize that system for diagnosis, even like, you know, identification of a person. But there's a huge controversial (laughs) things going on, of course. Let's talk a little bit more about the ethics and privacy. I saw an article today that said that in the U.S., many people, maybe 50% or less, are not interested in connecting a smart appliance, 
like a washing machine or an oven to the internet and sending data back to the companies. And it's because they don't see the value in that, but also they're concerned about how data like that could be used. When we're talking about a smart toilet, are we talking about an appliance here? Or are we talking about a medical device that's going to be guarded against the kinds of things we've seen with our web data being compromised on a, a shopping website? That's really a good question. Yeah. If it is medical device, you need a prescription by a doctor saying that this patient need this smart toilet for monitoring XX symptoms for like a certain period of time. That will actually lower the barrier to access to the general population. It may have a better privacy guidance because they're all protected by HIPAA. Every transmission will be encrypted and all those countermeasures for any kind of infringement. But for the consumer electronics, I think everything has to be anonymized. Otherwise, there's going to be a huge privacy issue. But it does sound like from what you've been saying that there's a bunch of different ways, different kinds of patterns that can be seen in this data, whether it's from urine stream or anal print or the microbiome of the person. There's just so many different ways that someone could be identified from this. If you don't have an access to the large amount of data set, you cannot analyze that. Test. So only thing you can see by transmission is just like a snapshot of a person's health status. We're not expecting we can actually extract some data out of it, but uh, maybe AI can do that. That's going to be another challenge because ChatGPT is like a ruling over all those writings. and It's rocking everybody's world right now. Right, yes. Seems like there are a lot of options for what you can test how you can collect data, you know, going towards precision health. But there are also quite a few barriers to this technology coming into our lives. How are you going to tackle pretty strong psychological opposition, the ethical questions we've talked about, even the engineering challenges of building these things into toilets? One way to elevate the psychological challenge is deploy this as a medical device first and gather real-world evidence to convince people that Smart toilet would provide a clear benefit over potential harms. And the engineering challenge are the easiest one to resolve because there's CES is interested in consumer electronics. I think it's um, as a matter of time. Mm -hmm. I think the last one, ethical consideration, is a crucial one that we should think about because we kind of need to justify it before its wide deployment. Otherwise, it will be, it, it sounds like, you know, Big Brother in 1984 because it's looking at everything. We're actually envisioning this as a healthcare sentinel in smart cities. Okay, maybe if people find out that astronauts are using smart toilets, they'll be more interested, more open to smart toilets for themselves. We're collaborating with NASA because uh, NASA is planning to send people to Mars in the next 10 years. And sending people to Mars is not an easy task. It will take at least uh, seven months to two years just for the space flight. But one of the uh, things that we need to think about is the crew member in the spacecraft will undergo severe work environment, hazardous work environment, because uh, it has a microgravity, radiation, confinement that really adversely affect their health. We're proposing space precision health, actually, with NASA, putting the smart toilet system into their spacecraft to look at their health every day, routinely and the longitudinally. Thank you so much for talking with me. This is so interesting. Thank you so much. Simon Park is an instructor in the Department of Urology at Stanford University School of Medicine. 
You can find a link to the Science Translational Medicine paper that we discussed at science.org slash podcast. And that concludes this edition of the Science Podcast. If you have any comments or suggestions, write to us at sciencepodcast at aaas.org. You can listen to the show on the science website, science.org slash podcast, or search for Science Magazine on any podcasting app. This show was edited and produced by me, Sarah Crespi, with production help from Kevin McLean and Podigy. Jeffrey Cook composed the music. On behalf of Science and its publisher, AAAS, thanks for joining us.